Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and we discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. Today, I will continue our series on the Italian city-states. This is part two of our series on Florence. In the first part, we discussed Florence's ancient origins as a Roman costume. Then we discussed the divisions between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and finally we concluded in the 1300s when things were starting to stabilize for the city. In this episode, we'll learn about how the Medici family came to power in Florence, and how their efforts gave a place to thrive for the geniuses who would call Florence home. We will discuss some of these famous Florentines, including Donatello, Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Machiavelli, and Amerigo Vespucci. Of course, that would be impossible without discussing the Medici family and its two most famous scions, Cosimo and Lorenzo, who will be the focus of this episode. Similar to what had happened to Dante, at the moment they were riding high, Florence's luck came to an abrupt end and it all came crashing down. Black Death in 1349 combined with the failures of the two main banks killed their economy. Florence needed to adjust to these changing times and do so fast. It couldn't just reform again, it needed a rebirth. In 1406, one of the first things Florence did to remake itself was to acquire Pisa, a city that was as close to collapse as its famous tower. This acquisition allowed Florence to access the coast and allowed them to become a maritime power to rival Venice. One family also needed to reborn themselves during this time. Seeing the great banks of Florence and Rome fall or divide, the Medici family, led by their patriarch Giovanni, established a tiny Florence-based bank in 1397. They benefited from perfect timing. A cousin of Giovanni, operating one of the last solvent banks in Rome, had acquired the Holy See's deposits. Since Florence now had a port and far more investment opportunities than Rome, the family decided to move the cousin's holdings to Florence. With lots of money now at their disposal, their rivals self-destructing, and the implementation of some ingenious financial innovations such as the double-entry ledger system, the Medici's were ready to conquer the financial world. But wait, you say. How could the Medici's start a viable bank system when the Pope had banned usury? Usury is the charging of interest to fellow Christians. It was for this reason that the Jews had become the de facto lenders for the Italians, operating as small-scale loan sharks. To overcome this prohibition, the Medici's acted as money changers instead of as money lenders. There was no ban on charging a fee for exchanging currency. And so when the Medici's gave out their interest-free loans, they would lend them with a requirement for currency to be exchanged. They then charged a higher rate for the currency exchange, equating to what the interest would have been. This helped them skirt the prohibition and make a lot of money. Soon they were opening branches in Geneva and Venice. It wouldn't be much longer until they opened for business in Bruges, London, Basel, Pisa, Avignon, Milan, and Lyon. This continued to make the papacy's number one choice as banker, the Medici's, even as the rivals cropped up, since bishops across the world could access the church's funds in the bank's branches. It also helped that the Medici's greased the wheels of the church a bit, helping a certain bishop become cardinal and later a pope. With the pope's favor, the Medici's literally made it an excommunicatable sin to not make your debt payments to them. And so, within a generation, the Medici's had become the biggest player of the financial system. They also became the political bigwigs of Florence. It was largely their money that kicked off and funded the Renaissance. 
Giovanni's son, Cosimo, was said to be by Machiavelli, quote, engaged more earnestly in public affairs and conducted himself with more zeal and boldness in regard to his friends than his father had done. Cosimo was one of the most prudent of men, of grave and courteous demeanor, extremely liberal and humane. He never attempted anything against parties or against rulers, but was bountiful to all, and by the unwearied generosity of his disposition made himself partisans of all ranks of the citizens." Quote. Pope Pius II had said of Cosimo, "...political questions are settled in his house. The man he chooses holds office. He is he who decides peace and war. He is king of Florence in all but name." To the populist-minded Florentines, Cosimo was a grave threat to their democracy. They blamed him for their inability to conquer the Republic of Lucca, and they agitated for his imprisonment. Cosimo used his connections in the Florentine government to change the execution to merely an exile. He then took his money and his family, and they moved to Venice, where they were greeted very warmly. Grateful for the Venetians, Cosimo decided to pay Michelozzo, who would become the pioneering architect of the Renaissance, to build a library in Venice. Meanwhile, the sudden loss of capital in Florence was palpable. Within a year, the people were begging Cosimo to come back, which he did. Upon his return, Cosimo immediately set out to overcome both the internal and external strife afflicting Florence. He had laws passed putting an end to the constant factionalization. He sent a mercenary soldier, a conduciere named Sforza, to rule over Milan as duke. With Milan strengthened, Venice became less belligerent. The balance of power between Florence, Naples, Venice, and Milan were now equalized, and the nations enjoyed half a century of peace. Their alliance also discouraged meddling from the French and Holy Roman Empires. Machiavelli writes, quote, These governments were so balanced and regulated among themselves as to enable them to live in freedom and defend their country from the barbarians. Among these governments, the Florentines, although they possessed a smaller extent of territory, were not inferior to any in power and authority." During this period, Cosimo convinced the Pope to hold an ecumenical council in Florence. This brought notable Byzantine thinkers to the city and revitalized interest in the Greek arts and literature. Cosimo took advantage of the peace and the revival of the arts and literature to become patron to some of the most important artists and thinkers of the Renaissance. Cosimo hired Michelozzo once again to create a palace for the Medici, known as the Palazzo Medici. He hired Donatello to create bronze statues of David and of Judith slaying Holofernes. David was the first freestanding nude statue created since antiquity. Cosimo also took pity on the bankrupt architect Brunelleschi and paid him to build the dome of the Cathedral of Florence, Santa Maria del Fiore. He founded the first public library in Florence, had it designed as a collaboration with Michelozzo and Donatello. He donated his collection of books to the library and financed trips all over the world by book hunter Poggio Bracciolini. Poggio refound many priceless classic Latin manuscripts which had been left decaying in German, French, and Swiss monasteries. Cosimo hired 45 copyists to make copies of these great classics. He established a school taught in Plato's style where his grandson Lorenzo would study. By the end of his life, Cosimo had spent over 600,000 gold florins, which is approximately $500 million, on art and culture. 
Can you imagine if our billionaires today spent money like that on arts and culture? Instead of wasting all their money paying Jeffrey Epstein and politicians and buying dying propaganda newspaper outlets? Now, as great as Cosima was, his grandson Lorenzo di Piero de Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, somehow managed to eclipse him. Raised by his brilliant politician father Giovanni and his poet mother Lucrezia, he was tutored by Bishop Gentile de Becchi, philosopher Marsilio Ficino, and Greek classicist John Argyropoulos. Lorenzo had one of the greatest educations in the history of this world, and he had one of the greatest minds to match it. One thing Lorenzo didn't have going for him was his looks. Apparently, while his brother Giuliano was so beautiful that he was used by Botticelli as a model for the Mars and Venus painting, Lorenzo was described by his friends as very homely. Nature has been a stepmother to him in regards to his personal appearance, although she had acted as a loving mother in all things concocted with the mind. In spite of this, he still appeared in a couple of Botticelli's paintings, the ones where Botticelli had been paid by his family to appear. Another thing Lorenzo lacked was funds. Taking over the family business at age 20, after his father's death, he soon realized that his grandfather's charitable giving had run the bank dry. The lack of funds also emboldened political rivals at home and abroad. The Archbishop of Pisa, with the blessing of Pope Sixtus IV, sent men to attack Lorenzo and his brother, the beautiful Giuliano. The men stabbed Giuliano to death, leaving Lorenzo to flee with a wound to the neck. The Archbishop then took an army and seized the palace of the Signore. At this danger, the wounded Lorenzo gave an impassioned speech to a council of Florence's most influential citizens. The speech is a masterclass on political speeches, and I think it'd be valuable to read a large excerpt from it. Quote, Most excellent signors, and you, magnificent citizens, I know not whether I have more occasion to weep with you for the events which have recently occurred, or to rejoice in the circumstances with which they have been attended. Certainly, when I think with that virulence of united deceit and hatred I have been attacked, and my brother murdered, I cannot but mourn and grieve from my heart from my very soul. Yet when I consider with what promptitude, anxiety, love, and unanimity of the whole city my brother has been avenged and myself defended, I am not only compelled to rejoice, but feel myself honored and exalted. For if experience has shown me that I had more enemies than I apprehended, it has also proved that I possess more warm and resolute friends than I ever could have hoped for. If our enemies' conduct had been adopted to gratify their desire for power, as would seem to be the case from their having taken possession of the palace and brought an armed force into the piazza, the infamous, ambitious, and detestable motive is at once disclosed. If they were actuated by envy and hatred of our authority, they offend you rather than us, for from you we have derived all the influence that we possess as Medicis. Certainly usurped power deserves to be detested but not distinctions conceded for acts of kindness, generosity, and magnificence. And you all know that our family never attained any rank to which this palace and your united consent did not raise it. Cosimo, my grandfather, did not return from exile with arms and violence, but by your unanimous desire and approbation. It was not my father, old and infirm, who defended the government against so many enemies, but yourselves, by your authority and benevolence, defended him. Neither could I, after his death, being then a boy, have maintained the position of my house except by your favor and advice. I am in your hands. 
It is with you to do with me what you please. You are my fathers, my protectors, and whatever you command me to do, I will perform most willingly, nor will I ever refuse, when you find occasion to require it, to close the war with my own blood, which was commenced with that of my brother. Close quote. While Lorenzo spoke, the citizens were unable to refrain from tears. Shortly thereafter, they rallied their forces, defeated the Pope's soldiers, and lynched the archbishop. In response to this, the Pope took his money out of the Medici banks. He seized all of the Medici assets. He excommunicated Lorenzo and the entire government of Florence, and he banned the entire city from receiving any sacred rites, including the sacrament. Not content with damning their souls, Pope Sixtus ordered the King of Naples and the Duke of Calabria to sack Florence. Lorenzo decided that the most prudent course of action would be for him to go down to Naples and sue for peace. At this, Machiavelli writes, quote, The Florentines found themselves in a very awkward predicament. Being destitute of money, the head of the Republic and the power of the King of Naples, themselves engaged in a long-standing war with the latter and the Pope, in a new one with the Genoese, and entirely without friends, for they had no confidence in the Venetians, an account of a, its changeable and unsettled state, they were rather apprehensive of Milan. They had thus only one hope, and that depended on Lorenzo's success with the King of Naples. Quote. Meanwhile, being admitted to the king's presence, Lorenzo spoke with so much propriety upon the affairs of Italy, the disposition of her princes and people, his hopes from peace, his fears of the results of war, that King Ferrando was more astonished at the greatness of his mind, the promptitude of his genius, his gravity and wisdom than he had previously been at his power. He consequently treated Lorenzo with redoubled honor and began to feel compelled rather to part with him as a friend than detain him as an enemy. King Ferrando allowed Lorenzo to depart on the 6th of March, 1479, having with every kind of attention and token of regard endeavored to gain his affection and formed with him a perpetual alliance for their mutual defense. As soon as this peace between Florence and Naples was brokered and publicly known, the Pope and the Venetians were transported with rage. They discussed openly the destruction that needed to fall upon Florence. The Pope sent the Duke of Calabria and his army to continue and destroy Florence. Only an act of God could save the city now. It was then, at that precise moment, when Mehmed II, the Ottoman Emperor, who had sacked Constantinople and ended the Byzantine Empire 26 years earlier, apparently had turned his sights on Italy. Some 4,000 Turkish soldiers had landed in Calabria on the ball of Italy's foot, plundering the undefended city. The Duke of Calabria panicked. His city was destroyed while he and his army were 500 miles away in Florence. The Pope also panicked. The Pope's allies in Naples and Venice panicked. All of a sudden, having a war on two fronts was a no longer popular idea. Lorenzo seized the opportunity and he sent ambassadors to the Pope. The Pope was not happy to see them. Nevertheless, he acquiesced to their requests, grudgingly issuing a full pardon to Florence. He told the ambassadors that it was because of their wickedness that the Turks were now attacking, and he declared that they needed to send 15 galleys to defend the coast of Italy from the Turks. The Florentines eagerly agreed, and all was forgiven. Pope Sixtus was at this time finishing work on a new church building which had been named after him, the Sistine Chapel. 
to seal the deal on their piece, Lorenzo thought it'd be prudent to send a few artists to spruce up the building with some frescoes. Those artists were Ghilandaio, Botticelli, Pietro Perugino, and Cosimo Rosselli. Their work would become legendary, and the Pope was placated. As you can see from this tale, like his grandfather, Lorenzo pursued peace at every opportunity. This made him deeply beloved and respected as the savior of Florence. It also made Naples and the Pope strong allies of Florence, and they in turn helped the Florentines defeat the Genoese. Lorenzo even brokered a historic peace and trade deal with Mehmed II. It was this maritime trade deal with the Ottomans that made the Medici family fabulously wealthy again. The Sultan respected Lorenzo so much that he sent ambassadors with valuable presents to honor the magnificent Medici. A new Pope, Innocent VIII, seeing how earnestly the Florentines sought for peace and adhered to their alliances, was far more amicable to them than his predecessor, and he brought the Papal States firmly into Florence's defensive coalition. During this time, Lorenzo had the money to fund the art and geniuses of the Renaissance. Lorenzo continued his grandfather's work of collecting classical books. He found so many that he built a new library, the Laurentian Library. Botticelli continued to be a Medici family court artist, and Lorenzo added Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo to that roster as well. Michelangelo particularly relied on the Medicis, for Lorenzo had funded Michelangelo's mentor, he had paid for Michelangelo's training, he had schooled Michelangelo in the Platonic schoolhouse where he had studied, he had been hired by Lorenzo at an early age, and Lorenzo practically adopted Michelangelo, even letting Michelangelo live with them for three years. Michelangelo learned at the feet of Lorenzo's own great tutors. Lorenzo also funded important building projects, like having the Signoria rebuilt. One project was building a court for the artists like Michelangelo to use in his sculpture garden where they could collaborate and debate. In 1471, Lorenzo calculated that his family had spent some 663,000 florins, or $460 million, on charity, buildings, and taxes since 1434. Lorenzo died in 1492. His tomb is now resting in the new sacristy, a funerary chapel built into St. Lorenzo's Cathedral, designed by Michelangelo, where he and his brother are interred. Michelangelo and another artist, Raphael, would later continue the work that Lorenzo had initiated, the decoration of the Sistine Chapel, painting glorious frescoes on the ceiling and in other rooms. The Florentine historian Machiavelli dedicated his most famous work, The Prince, to Lorenzo. In his History of Florence, Machiavelli writes a moving eulogy of his famous contemporary, quote, In council he was eloquent and acute, wise in determination, and prompt and resolute in execution. Nor can vices be alleged against him to solely so many virtues. Though he was fond of women, pleased with the company of facetious and satirical men, and amused with the games of the nursery, more than seemed consistent with a man of so great a character, for he was frequently seen playing with his children and partaking of their infantine sports, so that whoever considers this gravity and cheerfulness will find united in him dispositions which seem almost incompatible with each other. There was never in Florence or even in Italy one so celebrated for wisdom or for whose loss such universal regret was felt. I am especially struck by Machiavelli's description of how among Lorenzo's only vices were loving humor and spending time playing with his children. 
It comes as no surprise that some of those children and wards turned out incredibly well. His second son, Giovanni, became Pope Leo X. That is the Pope who would commission Bramante, Michelangelo, Maderno, and Bernini to build St. Peter's Basilica, the largest church in the world, on one of Christianity's holiest sites, the burial place of St. Peter in Rome. And Lorenzo's nephew, Giulio, whom Lorenzo adopted after the death of his brother, was raised as his own son and would become not just a ruler of Florence, but also Pope, Pope Clement VII. Lorenzo's ward, Lorenzo di Pier Francesco, a cousin from the Lesser Medici family, Cosimo's little brother, would also become an important Florentine politician and banker. Lorenzo the Magnificent paid for Lorenzo's education and arranged his marriage. Lorenzo the Magnificent even commissioned Botticelli's Palace Athene Taming a Centaur to celebrate the nuptials. The younger Lorenzo would go on himself to hire Botticelli on several more occasions. He is believed to be the one to commission The Birth of Venus, which is one of the most famous and important paintings of the Renaissance. After the Lorenzo the Magnificent's death, Lorenzo di Pieranesco would become the protector and patron of Florence's great artists. This Lorenzo would also become the employer and friend of Amerigo Vespucci. Amerigo is the Italian navigator whose letters to Lorenzo would ignite the world's imagination about a new world. After seeing the coast of Brazil, it was Amerigo who argued that there was an entire new continent out there. In respect to his discovery, cartographers on the continent began calling this new continent after him, America. So, as you can see, the Renaissance in Florence all ties back to the Medici. That is why I chose to focus on them so much today. Because of their vision, charity, love of literature, and peacekeeping, they created an environment where the arts could thrive. And that concludes my two-part episode on the history of Florence. To sum up, I think the Encyclopedia Britannica does a nice job expressing the outsized influence of this tiny superpower. Quote, The Florentine vernacular became the Italian language, and the local coin, the Florin, became the world's monetary standard. Florentine artists formulated the laws of perspective, Florentine people of letters, painters, architects, and craftspeople began the period known as the Renaissance, and a Florentine navigator, Amerigo Vespucci, gave his name to two continents. Thanks for listening today. I think there's so much to learn from the Florentines. I hope you continue to do so using the resources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you. <laughs>